Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at um, class 28, I believe, of our now 33 class structured study of jhana, uh, the meditation method the Buddha taught as one factor of the Eightfold Path. Um, I'm adding two classes uh, at the end of this. Um, one is a completely new sutta that I've been meaning to teach for a few years, and one is a sutta that I taught six or eight years ago, but they fit nicely at the end of this study. So. Our last four classes were on the Anapanasate Sutta, where the Buddha uses accomplished monks as an example of proper um, breath meditation or jhana meditation. Anapanasate means mindfulness of the breath. <coughs> and in that sutta, the Buddha describes the skills developed and the qualities of mind developed through jhana meditation as part of the Eightfold Path. Microphone, that is. Um, in this sutta, we, we're covering something that we've touched on a few times. Mary, I think that's your mic now. Could everyone mute their mic? I can't see which one it is. I can't see. Okay. <clears throat> And so here the Buddhist um, is describing um, deepening concentration and then the, uh, the benefits developed through deepening concentration and the factors necessary for concentration. Again, this is just simple instruction on how to meditate, coming at um, jhana in a slightly different way with some really interesting metaphors at the end of this. <clears throat> On one occasion, the Buddha was in Sabhakti at Jita's Grove and Athapandika's monastery. He addressed those gathered. Friends, I will teach you the five-factor noble concentration. Listen and pay close attention. And what is five-factor noble concentration? A follower of the noble eightfold path is quite secluded from sensuality and other unskillful mental qualities. That simply means they found a quiet place and they began jhana practice. They enter and remain in the first jhana. This first jhana is experienced as rapture or contentment, born of that very seclusion. So this first jhana, we've all experienced it this morning. You take a breath. Well, first you, you find a secluded spot, which we've all done, and you take a breath. And in that breath, you feel the contentment of your dhamma practice. You know what you're doing here. And it brings you that level of contentment. You understand the benefits of your practice. If you don't know the benefits of your practice yet, if you're just beginning or just reinvigorating your practice, the, the reference to contentment or rapture is simply a signpost for you. Continue to do this and you will develop a contentment and understanding that what you're doing is good for you to do. Again, just to say that over, the first jhana is experienced as contentment born of that very seclusion. It is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. It simply means that in the beginning of meditation, as we're not well concentrated yet, 
we're distracted by our feelings and thoughts arising and passing away. And so when we recognize that we're caught up, we remember this instruction from the Satipatthana Sutta. When we find that we're caught up and distracted by a feeling or a thought, we direct our thought back to our breath. That's all that it means. It doesn't mean we're getting into some long elaborate um, exploration of the human thought process. That's part of the problem. That is unrefined mindfulness. That's grasping after one thought after another. We are practicing refined or restrained mindfulness, and we know how to refine it and how to restrain it through this practice. The contentment of seclusion permeates their entire mind and body. Again, all of you have experienced this, maybe not in the first two meditation sessions, but very quickly, and some of you in your initial meditation session, you just recognize the pleasure born of this, this, this seclusion from the world and this deepening concentration. It feels good. It feels good to do it. It feels good in the moment to not be distracted by a feeling that we're grasping after. It's a pure feeling, and we'll get deeper into that as we go along. <clears throat> the Buddha describes this in such a wonderful way. It is as if one poured bath powder into a brass basin. Kneading the powder into the water, sprinkling more and more powder, forming a ball of bath powder. <clears throat> now saturated and moisture laden, it would nevertheless not lose a drop of its own substance. It's perfectly formed. There's just enough um, moisture or knowledge or wisdom in that ball. The Buddha then says, this is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body from the contentment born of that seclusion. We do it through the Eightfold Path. There's nothing left to speculation, excuse me. The Buddha is making an important point here and over and over and over again. His path is a Noble Eightfold Path. It's no more, but it's no less. It's not just meditation. The great majority of modern Buddhists consider any basic meditation practice as enough for their Buddhism. In other words, they might meditate once a week or even once a day, sometimes for long periods every day. I've had meditators call me up kind of boasting for uh, that they meditate for an hour and a half every day, and they've been doing it for 15 years, and yet they still don't understand why they're not getting anywhere, and it's because they haven't develop the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path that an awakened human being taught. Again, he taught meditation or jhana meditation specifically as one factor of an Eightfold Path. A follower of that noble Eightfold Path is able to permeate their entire mind and body from the contentment born of that seclusion. And then the Buddha says, that's just the beginning. This is the first development of the five-factor noble concentration. Furthermore, as the stilling of directed thought and as the stilling of directed thought and evaluation, they enter and remain in the second jhana. This second jhana or second level of meditative absorption is experienced as contentment and pleasure now born of concentration. So we're recognizing that our jhana practice is deepening our concentration and that's pleasurable. It brings a deepening sense of contentment with what we're doing because we're recognizing the benefits. <clears throat> Ahepasiko, come and see for yourself. 
free of directed thought and evaluation, the, the contentment of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. Now our concentration is deepening. We're no longer having to direct our thought immediately back to, the, to our breathing. There are ever deepening levels of concentration that we recognize as mindfulness of the breath after mindfulness of the in-breath and the out-breath, in-breath and the out-breath. And as I continue and my mind continues to calm with each breath, as the Buddha teaches in other teachings, the mind and body calms. It's as a consequence of proper jhana practice. It's not an award or a reward. It's simply a consequence of right meditation or jhana meditation. Then the Buddha uses this wonderful metaphor as it is as if a lake were now with no inflow is filled with spring water welling up within and from abundant showers. The cool water welling up from within the lake would permeate and fill the entire lake. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold, noble eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body from the contentment born of concentration. So now that that ever-deepening contentment is fueled by ever-deepening concentration and the recognition of it. So our jhana meditation is not just some um, amorphous practice of trying to stay connected to the breath and maybe looking out for visions or experiences or insight, but a very unstructured insight. Another one of the major schools of, med of modern Buddhism I don't need to mention it, and I'm not putting it down by mentioning it, is focused on a, a very um, unspecified, unspecific grasping after type of insight, rather than the very specific insight that the Buddha taught, the Buddha, the Buddha taught to develop through jhana meditation and the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path, which is insight into the three marks of existence, greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. And that's all. That's as far as our insight needs to go and should go. Because once we can understand our contributions to our own greed and aversion, rooted in our own deluded thinking, we are awakened. We've completed the task. It is just that well-focused, and it is just that simple. But our minds are rather complicated. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body from the contentment of concentration. I know I wanted to read that twice for the, for the emphasis. This is the second development of the five-factor noble concentration. The second factor is deepening contentment and the recognition of deepening concentration. Recognizing concentration as deepening is a, one of the five factors of concentration, recognizing it. It makes sense, doesn't it? <clears throat> Excuse me. If I'm hoping to develop a specific skill, skill. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm hoping to develop a specific skill such as fly fishing, I'm going to do it over and over again. And I'm going to notice when I'm not casting properly and when I am. The reason why I'm recognizing that I'm not casting properly is so that I can abandon that type of casting and focus on or be mindful of proper casting. In the same way, I'm mindful of 
improper or wrong meditation, which may be um, holdovers or leftovers or conditioning from past meditation practices that didn't have this focus. And so this was even true of the Buddha, remember during his awakening in the Nagara Sutta, how he describes this, and then the Aryapariyasana Sutta, where he talks about developing different meditation practices. But when he recognized that they weren't leading to his goal, he was able to develop jhana meditation. So proper jhana meditation is also recognizing what it's not. It's a very limited, very refined meditation practice. It's on just this one thing, mindfulness of breathing, so that our concentration deepens. That's it. It's the only reason we engage in jhana. And it is through that ever-deepening concentration that we're able to perform or integrate or develop the entire Eightfold Path as our Dhamma practice. Furthermore, as contentment fades, there remain equanimous, balance. It doesn't mean that our, our meditation practice is now getting miserable or even miserly because contentment fades. It's simply a deepening, a, 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 an experience of ever deepening concentration. Contentment is no longer there because it no longer is necessary for the further deepening of concentration. And so you'll notice in um, some other suttas and somewhat in this, where the Buddha actually teaches that deepening contentment that you recognize at some point, if you, can, if you continue to cling to it, will be a hindrance. It will hold you to this third level of jhana. And the, one of the concluding suttas is on, on the Nibbana Sutta, where the Buddha specifically says, even you, the wording is here, even here, this Dhamma practitioner could get caught up in grasping after contentment, or even grasping after concentration. So what the Buddha is teaching here, in, uh, to a deeper and more broader extent in a, in a, in a future sutta, to recognize that even the qualities that we're developing are not to be grasped after. They're simply to be experienced. But it's important to recognize the experience. Why? Because when I recognize that I am developing my own contentment through my own efforts, now I am good to go. I am likely or more likely to be self-invigorating or self-guiding or self-directing my own practice. I'm not relying on promises of some future development or even a clinging attachment to a teacher or a particular sangha or even a particular idea, such as if I'm just a really good person and if I'm kind to everyone and if I try to save everybody in the world, I'm good to go. The Buddha recognized that as all fabrication and a complete distraction from awakening, developing a calm and peaceful mind. Notice all these things falling away because they're distractions and focus only on deepening concentration. And in keeping with that, the Buddha says, furthermore, man, I missed the spot. Let me, let me go back there. Furthermore, as contentment fades, they remain equanimous, mindful, alert, and sensitive to pleasure. Sensitive to pleasure is different than grasping after sensual pleasures, doesn't it? It means that I'm just sensitive to the pure pleasure of having a human life and being present for it. And so even then, there's pleasure in sadness, 
and pleasure in confusion as long as I can recognize it and insist that it not be any different in this moment. And so in that way, I can allow myself to be a confused human being without having to judge myself for it. And in that way, then I can recognize that being a confused human being is just rooted in a lack of concentration rather than some fault of my own. Because all human beings get confused, all human, be all human beings get sad and angry and content and blissful and joyful and any other and the whole range of emotions. Every one of those is appropriate. Why are they appropriate? Because a human being feels them, this human being. They become inappropriate when I react to them and use them to feed some fabricated ideology of myself or the world that I live in. An emotion is a thought attached to a feeling. It occurs, from a, it occurs in a mind that has no concentration or poor concentration because that's what an, a, um, a person who is not a follower of the Eightfold Path lives their entire life always thinking that their life is an experience of satisfying one feeling. Whatever that feeling, that, that person, that individual decides, decided is for them the only feeling they ever want to have. And all the rest of them are either inappropriate because I don't want to feel them or other people have said our behavior or our words and actions are inappropriate. All of that is rooted in a fabrication. And I think now you can see how complicated and confusing our minds really become because all that we're doing is grasping after satisfaction externally and in experiences rather than developing the pure contentment of Dhamma practice. Knowing that what I'm doing is skillful and it's going to develop a common peaceful mind. <clears throat> they enter and remain in the third jhana, which is equanimous, a balanced mind, mindful and a pleasant abiding, a pleasant abiding. This is leading to or inferring. Excuse me for drinking in the middle of a sentence. This is inferring an awakened quality of mind, calm. It's the only way the Buddha ever described an awakened quality of mind. So here we're taught to recognize we're experiencing the quality of an awakened mind in each jhana session. Every time you recognize in your, in your meditation session a calm or pleasant abiding, that's a direct experience of the quality of an awakened human being. And it's not magical, is it? How could it be magical? How could it be anything that you need to acquire? No. That calm quality of mind is owned by each and every one of us. Why do I say that? It's owned. Because if we didn't own it, we couldn't experience it. We can only experience what we own. Excuse me. <coughs> the problem with, with ownership is we can own anything that we want. That is an uncontrolled mind. It grasps after after and owns anything that it can fabricate as valuable or the converse invaluable, or I have aversion for it. Greed and aversion rooted in deluded thinking. Where does it manifest? Right here and right now in a mind that is distracted towards 
satisfying a feeling or continuing a thought or continuing a thought attached to a feeling, maintaining an emotion. I'm angry. The world angered me and I'm going to carry it around for three or four days or the rest of my life. Or something tragic happened to me and I never learned how to deal with it because I didn't I never gained control of my mind enough to recognize that this profound grief that I'm feeling is only appropriate for a few moments or a few days, but not for an entire lifetime or all the disappointments that we pile up on top of ourselves and claim those as me. We own them every time we attach ourselves to them. We're saying, I want to own this feeling. And you may think that's crazy that you do it, but it is. It is crazy. It's a lack of mindfulness or it's a lack of refined mindfulness. It's a lack of knowing what to hold in mind and what to abandon. And what do we hold in mind? The Eightfold Path. What do we abandon? Anything else that doesn't fit. How do we find out what doesn't fit? Well, we begin with right speech and right action leading to right livelihood. <clears throat> Excuse me. When we are mindful of the moral or, or ethical factors of the Eightfold Path, we immediately find out where we're eye-making, where we're engaging in massaging a feeling or a thought or keeping those feelings and thoughts going as my identity of self, even if it's a pretty miserable view. Or it might be a view that, that is continually grasping after positivity. Positive thinking is one of the most debilitating religions that's ever been foisted on mankind because we create a quality of mind that insists on seeing only positives and never seeing negative. Well, you just lost half your life because the Buddha teaches there is dukkha. There's going to be negativity <laughs> in life. Don't take it personal because none of it is and don't create aversion to it. And that's what we do when we think we're only supposed to think positively or look at positive things. We're not designed that way. We're designed as human beings to have the full gamut of human experience and to deny any feeling or any thought or any emotion is denying my own humanity. And I did it for many, many years. It got so intense with me and so immediate the need to den deny who I was for a human being. I couldn't help but try to drain every vodka bottle in the world, smoke every bag of pot and do a lot of other illegal drugs just to keep knowing me down. I was so terrified of who I might find. And then even after I gave up drugs and alcohol, it was quite a process to simply become at peace with who I was. But think about what I just said. Up until that point, I spent my entire life at war with myself, literally. And we all do it. We all do it because we get rooted in something called self-loathing. We think we're not good enough. And so we start acquiring characteristics that are simply not us. They're all fabrications. And this is how we undo it. With the fading of contentment, this pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. Another wonderful metaphor. It is as if a pond is permeated with red, white, and blue lotus. A lotus grow underneath the water almost their entire lifetime, and many of them never reach above the surface. 
and growing immersed in the water. They flourish permeated with cool water from the root to tip, never standing above the surface. They're content at that moment. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body. From the contentment born of the fading, <laughs> I just got myself stuck in a corner here. From the satisfaction born of the fading of contentment. How do you like that, Raman David? <laughs> this pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. This is the third development of the five-factor noble concentration. We all experience it. We're all developing this. Furthermore, with the abandoning of evaluation, they enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and mindful. It's just a deepening of that third level of jhana. It's now becoming more... Um, It's now becoming more and more of our personality, of who we really are, not a fabricated personality. You could say a person-ality. This is who we're becoming. Pure equanimity and mindful. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. And that also means neither pleasure nor pain is no longer grasped after or avoided. It's simply what is occurring. This Dhamma practitioner sits permeated in mind and body in pure, bright awareness. Awareness of what? It's another word for mindfulness of life as life occurs. Experiencing life as life occurs in pure, bright awareness. Resting in concentration. Now not discriminating from anything in the world. From one feeling or another, from one thought or another, from one experience or another, or one human being or another. Imagine that not having to judge another human being, whether they're worthy to be in the world or not. How did you get to that point? Because you stopped judging yourself as being worthy or not to be in the world. You know you're worthy to be in the world simply by being in the world. There's no other justification that any human being ever needs to explain why they're here. There's no other explanation that I need to give you for being who I am, except to be mindfully present with who I am in life as life occurs, right? Does everybody see the calm in that? The authenticity in that calm of simply being who and what I am. It doesn't mean that I might be a better person in relation to the Dhamma in the next moment. In fact, I likely will as long as I continue with the Dhamma, but I'm content in my Dhamma practice knowing who I am, and now I've gone beyond contentment. And I'm simply resting in that pure, bright awareness. I don't have to be content anymore to be in my mind and my body. I've gone beyond even that. It is, uh, it is as if one were sitting head to toe in a white cloth, their entire body covered. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body with pure, bright awareness. This is the fourth development of the five-factor noble concentration. There's simply nothing of note there. There's just this pure, bright awareness. And this is the way we carry ourselves through the world. And this is the way other people will start perceiving us. I had a really interesting conversation with Julia last night. Uh, if, if you want to talk about this, the only reason I'm, reckon, I'm bringing this up is maybe you'll talk about it, Julia. I hope you do, but you don't have to. All right. 
This pure bright awareness is the fourth development of the five-factor noble concentration. Furthermore, this follower of the noble eightfold path has refined mindfulness well established. Refined meaning it's just focused on the eightfold path, not the modern version of, of mindfulness, which is really um, uh, a kind of a, a religion of grasping after, be mindful of everything that's arising, be mindful of washing the dishes and be mindful of driving the car and be mindful of this and be mindful of that. No, be mindful of breath in your body and be mindful of the seven, other seven factors of the eightfold path. That's as far as our refined mindfulness goes. Their mindfulness is attended to, understood, and well penetrated by wise discernment. It is as if this person, when sitting, knew another as standing, or when standing, knew another as lying down. That could be a rather obscure reference. Does anybody want to take a stab at it? No. Basically, see. Dhamma teacher Ram. <laughs> see other people as they are exactly yes it, it, in other words instead of if i'm sitting everybody has to be sitting if i'm standing everybody has to be standing if i'm a democratic everybody everybody must be a democratic i'm, it's, I'm not getting into pub etc etc we tend to on insist on insisting that other people be exactly like us or we're threatened by them and we insist that they be lying down when we're lying down we're sitting when i'm sitting or doing anything else, including Dharma practices, I'm practicing my Dharma. This is true liberation, isn't it? When I can be sitting and you can be standing, or I can be standing and you can be sitting, or I can be a Democrat and you can be a Republican. We used to live like that, by the way. I know it's hard to believe. Or I could be black and you could be white, you know, or all the things that we're fighting about these days, or I could decide to want to call myself something different without insisting that you must call me that, you know? For years, I saw myself as a roofer, but I didn't insist that people saw me that way, but it was important to me that I be that. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about something that might be a little bit uncomfortable, but the resolution to all these, the, this, this modern tribalism and this modern um, self-identification with very finite forms is resolved through the Dhamma. I don't have to be anything except what I am, and I don't have to insist that you validate it or you accept it. Why should I? Why should I base my happiness on your acceptance of who I am as a human being, no matter how outrageous it is, including as outrageous as it is for me to say, this is what the Buddha taught, and I'm content in that, and I don't have to argue that with anyone, right? It's all the same thing. And all of it resolves in being content and being a fully mature, using Abraham Maslow's word, a fully actualized human being, meaning a human being that knows what it is and what it isn't. So too, this follower, the noble eightfold path has refined mindfulness well-established. Their mindfulness is attended to, understood, and well penetrated by wise discernment. This is the fifth development of five-factor noble concentration. We know that our mindfulness is refined. We have control, you could, you, and you could resolve all of these five factors of concentration into one, that in this moment, 
I have complete control of my mind. I know where my next thought came from, what's feeding this moment, and where my next thought is going to come from. Calm, understanding. Right? From this moment. And you could all say from this moment on, every one of your thoughts will be calm and fed by understanding. And if it's not, find out why. And it's, it's something missing in this Dhamma practice, right? And when you find out why, your Dhamma practice will be complete. And where do we find out why, Laura? I put you on the spot. <laughs> where do we find out why? Um, well, I don't, everything just comes back to breath in the body, jhana meditation. Yep. Letting go of the ego and directing the thought back to the breath. And we do all that through continued Dhamma practice. It's just that Dhamma way. Practice. Thank mm -hmm. you, Lord. Again, there's no magic or mystery to this. It's just Dhamma practice. Then the Buddha says, when a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path has pursued and developed this five-factor noble concentration, they have mastered the six superior understandings. These are understandings that are superior than anything else we might consider. This person thinks what they want whenever they want and does not think what is unskillful. That is liberation, my friends. Think about that. To be able to think what you want and never think what is inappropriate to this moment. This person thinks what they want whenever they want and does not think what is unskillful. And we all can develop that type of refined mindfulness and concentration. Through appropriate mindfulness, they understand the suffering of many, meaning all phenomena, from understanding their own suffering. How else could any real knowledge come from? How could I truly hope to understand you? Save by understanding me. How else could it be? Again, we have incredible um, advanced courses in, in biology and uh, psychiatry and psychology. And that this most simplest way of understanding all of that, it doesn't qualify me to be a doctor or a therapist or someone who could pr prescribe medications, but it does qualify, qualify me to say, I know what it means to be a human being. Mm. And isn't that the most important knowledge? Why would we want anything else first? Doesn't it make sense to first understand who and what we are and then build from that? And that's what we're doing. No matter where we are, whether we're, we're the youngest one in the Sangha or the oldest, me and Ram, I think, we still get the opportunity to build reality what it means to be a human being from whatever moment we're in. And so it doesn't matter the start of the beginning. What's important is what moment am I in? I'm here. From lack of clinging, they are spacious, free, unbound, unimpeded. Their form has no boundary. This form has no boundary now because I'm not limiting 
who I am to just this. Who I am now is my entire experience of my life. Not limited by, in my case, in my individual case, not limited by a five, seven, maybe five, six and a half since yesterday, half blind, gimpy, painful body. And this body, this human being is not limited by any of it. I'm not. To me, that's remarkable. But I also see all of you and I recognize that you're not limited by anything either. Some of you may still be clinging to a belief that you are, but I know you're not. From lacking, lack of clinging, they are spacious, free, unbound, unimpeded. Their form has no boundaries and no self-distraction. A mind united in its body. A mind completely united in its body, with no discrimination, has no distinction. It's just theater. This occurs to a practitioner whenever they are mindful and well-concentrated. So pay attention. Because you all have this feeling, and I would be interested if any of you haven't had this feeling of being spacious, free, unbounded, unimpeded. Because I bet every one of you has. Their consciousness unbound, restrained by, by concentration now. Sounds are unfettered and unsurpassed. So a sound could be anything. It could be a sound that in the past... I found unpleasant. It might be the noisy neighbors next door, or it might be a horn beeping when I'm trying to meditate. It doesn't matter. It's just a sound arising and passing away. It's one of my senses encountering the world, but one of my senses from a body united in it, from a mind united in that body, not taking anything personal. Read that again. Their, <clears throat> their ear consciousness, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't say that. Their ear consciousness, unbound, restrained, sounds are unfettered and unsurpassed. This occurs to a practitioner whenever they are mindful and well concentrated. We're in control of our senses. When appropriate, mindful, and well concentrated, they understand the mindfulness and concentration of others from understanding my own or the lack of concentration in others. Excuse me. It is said that the Buddha had clairvoyant powers, and he didn't. At least he never claimed to have any. But it seems so because he could meet people, and he would, within a few moments, because of his own refined mindfulness and knowledge of his self, understand other people. But again, not through magic, not through being able to read people's minds, but simply because he knows himself, he knows others. And the Buddha says, they know a mind with passion. As a mind with passion, why is that important? Because when I find that I'm passionate and I'm distracted by that passion, I recognize it, abandon it, and I become dispassionate. They know a mind without passion as a mind without passion, without passion. How would I know how to get from passion to dispassion? Because I know that I've done it myself before. And I know I can do it again in just one breath. They know a mind of aversion as a mind of aversion. They know a mind free of aversion as a mind free of aversion. We are having this direct experience. That's why the Buddha is teaching this. Notice 
as you're developing this. A wise Dharma practitioner, all of us, knows a deluded mind as a deluded mind, and they know a, a, a mind free of delusion as a mind free of delusion. We know it, and we know it incrementally as well. They know a restricted mind as a restricted mind. They know a mind free of restriction as a mind free of restriction. That's, that's a reference to the restriction or the burden of eye making, not the restriction of a well-concentrated mind. They know a spacious mind as a spacious mind. They know a constricted mind as a constricted mind. It's, it's simply mind. So all those experiences that we might have had during meditation as a vast and spacious mind, and I'm thinking of a few that I had, um, that's not concentration. That's experience. That's distraction. So anytime you find yourself in that experience of a very spacious mind and clinging to it, don't. Just enjoy it. That's your experience of a calm mind without discrimination. There's no restrictions to that mind. They know a refined mind as a refined mind. They know as an unrefined mind as an unrefined mind. They know a concentrated mind as a concentrated mind. They know a distracted mind as a distracted mind directly through practice. Nobody has to tell us when we're distracted or when we're concentrated. They know a mind released from ignorance as a mind released from ignorance of Four Noble Truths. How do we know? Because we have the direct experience. There's nothing that the Buddha teaches us that he doesn't also teach us what the experience is like. We don't have to guess at anything or fabricate anything. They know a mind clinging to ignorance as a mind clinging to ignorance. How do we know? Because it's full of stress and suffering, that mind. They know for themselves a well-concentrated mind supporting refined mindfulness. They know the arising and the passing away of bodies within the continuation of endless samsara, just the arising and passing away of human life. We know that millions and millions, really countless numbers of human beings have arisen and passed away. Yet very, very few have actually understood what it meant. They know the arising and the passing away of bodies within the continuation of endless samsara, endless ignorance. They understand their associations to people and their circumstances of wandering in ignorance, clinging to other people who are likewise ignorant of Four Noble Truths and associating with people that are likewise ignorant of Four Noble Truths, creating an identity. That's what I mean by associating creating an identity by your associations with other people ignorant of Four Noble Truths, which is basically every fabricated idea or fabricated ideology that every human being seems to be so enamored with grasping onto and clinging to one, not the others. Their eye consciousness unbound, restrained, they see clearly the continuation of others bound to endless samsara or endless ignorance according to their karma. They understand the suffering of others rooted in bad conduct arising from wrong views. They understand those bound to wrong views are also bound to continue suffering. Furthermore, their eye consciousness, now unbound, restrained, may see clearly the arising and passing away of others bound to endless ignorance according to their karma. There's, there's many teachings on karma. I won't get into it right now. They understand the release of others rooted in good conduct arising from right views. I realize I have to. 
Karma is simply the present moment unfolding of past intentional acts now moderated by the present level of mindfulness, meaning karma is not um, part of some vague um, quasi-supernatural universal system of behavior modification, meaning of reward and punishment leading to, to behavior modification. Karma is simply the recognition of this moment of past intentional actions now moderated by my present level of mindfulness. So if my mind is agitated in, in this moment, it's because I'm dragging something from the past into this moment. Whatever it is, I can recognize and abandon it. In so doing, I'm bringing that portion of my karma to cessation. So karma has nothing to do with any future birth or anything like that. Karma has to do with what I'm giving birth to in this moment. So as I bring karma to cessation, I'm also bringing to cessation, giving rise to one wrong view after another. They understand, understand those released from wrong views, wrong views are also released from continued suffering. Thus, from, from establishing this five-factor concentration, they enter and remain free of the defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. They are mindful of their, re, of their release through direct experience right here and right now. It's not in a future life. It's not even necessarily tomorrow. It's within Dhamma practice in this moment. They know this for themselves due to a well-concentrated mind supporting refined mindfulness. We're doing this for ourselves. I'm going to read this again because this is so important. This is kind of the, the whole crux of Ahipasika, the whole crux of why I keep saying and going over how important it is to recognize this for ourselves. They know this whole experience for themselves due to a well-concentrated mind supporting refined mindfulness. Refined mindfulness is the heart of the Dhamma or the Eightfold Path. This is what the Buddha said, gratified. Those assembled were, grati were gratified by the Buddha's words. That's the end of today's sutta. So um, it, it's, it's a little bit of a long sutta, so I would ask you to keep your comments um, to just a few minutes, but please don't, um, if you have anything to say, uh, or any questions, please ask them. We'll go online. And I think I'll start with Julia. Julia, how are you? I'm well. Thank you, John. This was great. Um, did, you, did it relate at, at all to last night's uh, conversation? Yeah, but I sort of thought about something else instead. Um, and so I'm going to try to say this right. Where it's easy to understand, but um, so I work at a, a detox facility, right? And I have um, patients that remind me of a friend, like this specific patient that um, reminded reminds me of a friend that passed away this year um, from substance use. And when I say that out loud to like my uncle, because I I'm staying. Um, in an apartment attached to his house and stuff. So I talk to him frequently and I mention it. And when I, I feel this strong emotion when I'm in contact with this patient, um, mm -hmm. but I don't find it negative. But when I say it out loud, it comes off as negative or when I'm explaining a certain situation, it can come off as with, from the other person's point of view as, as negative, but I'm not finding it negative. I'm finding it just me experiencing it. 
So I find that with, um, so when I'm talking, I'll like, like, I'm so used to like these, this certain, um, thing being in drilled in my head of, Oh, like think positive, say positive things. Um, and then when I'm saying something that might not be viewed as such positive, so positive, but I'm not saying it in a negative way. I'm just saying it, that this is what I'm experiencing. Um, but I find it beautiful that I'm experiencing that, um, yeah. even though I'm not feeling a strong, positive emotion towards it. It is, to me, it's positive that I'm feeling this um, certain way, but, you know, the way I'm speaking about it isn't as, yeah. like, if that it's making sense, like, it's not this. Yeah. Wait, another word that I, that I might use instead of a positive is that you're, you're, it's a skillful feeling that you're feeling because it's appropriate to what's happening. And the reason why you you might be perceiving that the other person is taking it as negative and not the way that you intended is just because you you still have a little bit of um, uh, conditioned mind to getting into other people's minds, and that's also attached to something that you're that you're also um, abandoning, but you're caught up in the in that condition your your own conditioned thinking that would feel that way you understand yes. but you're not because you you recognize that and abandon it to where there's just a little shred of clinging left the energetic if you will that that's what's causing the feeling but again you're you have almost completely abandoned that that condition quality of mind and so it feels good you like know, it's not something that you want to get rid of yeah yeah yeah. And yeah. if you if you interacted with this other person because you were trying to to project something positive in a negative way, meaning I'm just like you, but it really isn't a, pos- a positive way of, of thinking or acting and you abandon that as well. And it's just your your pure pleasure as this sutta talked about of being present for this for your patient. Make sense? Yeah. Um, perfect sense. But the, my uncle did like mention like that I'm, he's like, you know, you gotta be positive and you gotta do this when I like mention those things. So that's why I'm mentioning him specifically. Um, yeah. Because then You're I'm learning like, huh. right as well. then I spent a few days like, huh, am I negative? Like, I don't feel like I'm negative. I'm just speaking. <laughs> Yeah. So again, you're getting into the fine points of right speech as well. What was your intention when you said that to your uncle? Was it? Um, was it? Wait. What'd you say? Is it what? What was your intention in saying that? It was just to describe how you were feeling. Yeah, it was just something that I was experiencing. That I was. I can say that I'm grateful for the experience, though. Um, yeah. So what you were, what you, what you were also experiencing was what you're what your uncle was thinking about that, which really doesn't have anything to do with you, except you're in conversation with him. In other words, it would be rude to just n- not respond, but you know, you understand that what you're feeling is just what you're feeling. How other people perceive you is how they perceive you. Mm. And the check on that is, is your mind in that moment calm and peaceful? And if it's, if it's agitated, then you know you, you, you might be involved in something else there. But again, that's not your experience. So you're just learning what what it is to to see the remnants of a conditioned mind. 
Thank you, Rob. See you too. Yeah. Soon. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this, this suit that points to that, but everything that we've talked about points to just recognizing the, the benefits of practice. So thank you, Julia. Mary, good morning. Do you have to go? Good morning. Mm -hmm. I'll take noble yeah. silence, John. Wonderful sutta. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Um, Neil has to go. Neil, do you mind being on camera? I don't have much to contribute today. I'm oh, okay. just taking it all in. But thanks, John. I'm glad you're here. Me too. Tom, I mean, uh, Kevin, how are you? Dr. Kevin. I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Morning, John. Morning, everybody. Morning, Kevin. Um, yeah, this. Um, I, I just love the way the sutta follows the whole deep study of the Anapanasati Sutta. Um, when we finished studying that, and I finished, I thought, I don't need to know anything else. This is it, um, and and I still think that's true uh, because it's so deep and it's so complete. Um, but then with this sutta following, it just takes it to another level level of depth um, that is so intense and rewarding. Yeah. Um, I also, um, not to take all the time in the world, but um, you know, I just had this experience of traveling for three weeks and I had an impossible time meditating when I was away. And in uh, my time, you know, I traveled in France, my time there was just spent, it was kind of like a self-indulgence. I just um, was living a life where, you know, just eating was all what it was about. And it was really just self-indulgent. I enjoyed every minute of it. But I think now, you know, reflecting now that I've come back and I can meditate with uh, greater concentration, I needed that maybe. I needed to be, see that side again. And so now yeah. I can come back to the middle, middle way, and I hope I can continue that way. So thank yeah, you. And it, it, it's, it's, it's really great how you've established the true refuge of the Dhamma and that you can always return to it. Yes. And it, it's just that way, you know, so good for you, Kevin. Thank you for, for sharing that, too. Uh, let me go to Drake. Drake, what do you think of this morning's class? Oh, well, I enjoyed it very much. And I really appreciated reading that sutra for the first time last night. Um, yeah. And I, I guess if I could ask a question, it would be about, um, please, you know, fabrications of thought born of ignorance, like the practice, like uh, um, what is the skillful means for when we catch ourselves, you know, we're in a uh, identified with, some desire or aversion and uh what, what is the best way to uh, come back to the present moment and to see life as it really is yeah thank you drake that is the the uh, that is the basic practice but it's also the whole practice and so the the buddha's dhamma um and, uh, drake has quite a background in, in in modern buddhism so i just just to say it this way that the way that i teach what the buddha taught um, which I think is pretty well founded, uh, is, is only practice in this present moment. So we can't practice the Dhamma to resolve past injury, past trauma, and obviously we can't practice the Dhamma 
to manipulate uh, something that might happen in the next moment or you know, the, the next lifetime, where much of modern Buddhism resides in that next lifetime. Um, and so through jhana meditation, again, the Buddha taught jhana for the sole purpose of deepening concentration, we're simply able to be well concentrated in this moment and have this moment framed by right view, which is a view that's developed through the entire Eightfold Path. But that right view, Drake, resolves itself in whatever is occurring in this moment is not me. And so I'll often refer to a few lines in the Bahia Sutta, which is right on the homepage of the website, um, where in this moment, I remind myself over and over again until it becomes just part of my personality. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am, whatever it may be. So most of us as beginning Dharma practitioners will start with the grossest things in our um, life and behavior, such as getting angry with someone or a coworker. And we'll start our practice there relating it to right speech. And gradually we'll be able to bring it off our cushion into as that moment of anger might be arising and we're able to catch ourselves. <sighs> Exaggerated for effect. We unite a mind in our body. We remind ourselves, this is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. No matter what that other person is projecting to us, expressing to us, trying to put on us, we stay within ourselves, well concentrated, and we don't take the, take the bait, if you will. We stay sovereign. We stay, we stay well restrained. We stay calm and peaceful. We stay a human being. So that was probably more words than you expected to get. But what you're describing and what you're pointing to uh, is the basic practice. So it shows a, a very good understanding of where we're going here. So uh, do you have any other questions, Rick? Uh, no, I'm just very grateful and I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Maybe a million? Well, if you have any other questions or you just want to get together and talk, uh, we can set up a Zoom session. But just send me an email via the website. But I'm always available to you. Thanks for joining us, Drake. Welcome to our Sangha. Good morning, Becky. Good morning, John. Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome, Drake. Um, so many things went through my mind while we were going through this sutta. Um, I don't want to take a lot of time, but I just want to say that I don't know how many years you have to practice the Dhamma to be able to describe what you want to describe without getting teary. But apparently <laughs> I haven't practiced it enough because uh, I still can't do it. Continue to come. So anyway, I just wanted to say that reading this sutta gave me so much contentment and so much uh, just the feeling of being so thankful that I could understand that I could that I could really feel the the Buddha's words coming through. It was almost like I was having a a really you know like a really good meditation session. Um, it's a great sutta, and I don't think that. 
I would have appreciated it if you had taught it earlier. So thank you, John. And what mm -hmm. I what I didn't understand when I read it was when sitting, know another as standing. But when you described it, when you when when Ram actually explained it, that's another teary moment that came to me this morning because when sitting, know another as standing doesn't mean just know that you're sitting. It means know what he is going through as he yeah. is standing. And yeah. that is just so powerful, such a powerful understanding to have. And just thank you. And <coughs> thank you, Becky. That's quite a breakthrough of understanding, as, as thank Siddhartha you, John. would put it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Good morning, Slav. Good morning, John, and good morning to everybody. Uh, first of all, I want to say um, thank you for Julie. She able to do this hard and very amazing, beneficial job. Thank you very much, Julie. It's it's take a lot. And yeah. also, John, I want to thank you. It's very good uh, reminder. Uh, practice uh, Anapanasati Sutta and the last Sutta. It's not all about meditation. It's all about eightfold path because. Yeah. I don't know, from my experience, I keep forgetting and constantly have to remind myself about uh, eight uh, full pass. Yeah. And also it's good point highlighting of uh, what we're mindful of. We're mindful of fabrication and not fabrication. We're mindful cleaning to one side or another, nothing else. If it's nothing else, it's not the practice what the Buddha teaches, something else. Thank you, it was amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Slav. Laura, can I put the camera on you? Okay, sure. <laughs> Laura. Okay. Thank you, John, and everyone. Uh, it's always great listening to everyone. Um, yeah, and what Julia brought up was on my mind and so important because um, that Kind of stuck out for me when you were talking john about denying or avoiding negativity and how that really denies the first noble truth yeah. that we would be denying the fact that dukkha occurs yeah. um but the way julia described it was great she was just experiencing a pure that pure bright awareness now sometimes i guess that can be confusing when other people are involved like you were saying when people are projecting you know a certain thought or attitude or their own um, state of mind onto you but I was going to ask you John about clarification for that that part of the sutta where it talks about like to what extent we should understand another and I think you were saying something about through our own understanding of what it means to be a human being and our own suffering we can have true compassion for others but sometimes we reach a certain point where we it's not our responsibility like with Julia's uncle like you can only understand someone to a certain point right like oh yeah in, in Julia's case she can understand why her uncle ask a question in that way. I mean, mm -hmm. We're talking about specifics here. 
because she, she understands how ignorance of four noble truths can manifest as um, skewed views of reality, including seeing people. I, I see others as I want to see them mm-hmm. rather than how they really are. You know, it, it's uh, in, in, I got an early lesson on this in my family for some reason. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking, I, I can't, I was going to reference someone whose son might hear this, so I'm not going to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know people that act in a way, probably close people, maybe people in our family that act in a way that is completely different than the way we might act. And that doesn't make them wrong. It just makes them different. But in our minds, we might, because their behavior might seem aggressive or hurtful or might, might even be dishonest. It's, or even worse than that, it might be someone who is physically aggressive with other people. Mm-hmm. In that case, the first thing we do is make sure that we're safe and others are safe. And then we let go of any judgment because the judgment that we're going to have of a person like that, such as they're, they're rotten and they should burn in hell, only hurts us and everybody else. Mm-hmm. It only creates what we're seeing in the world today. So to, <laughs> I took that a little far, but mm-hmm. to answer your question in that, in that moment, as I understand myself and I'm calm and at peace with myself, mm-hmm. I am calm and at peace with other people. It's not, it doesn't, I don't have to fabricate it mm-hmm. or I don't have to see myself as the savior because I'm not judging this awful person. I'm like, guess what? You're judging, you're seeing someone as awful, you're judging them. Mm-hmm. You know, and to see someone as just a a confused and perhaps um, someone who engages in very antisocial behavior may be true. It's no reason to judge someone as less than you are mm-hmm. simply because your behavior is different. It, it's the same as anything. We might because I have a college degree and you don't. Well, you're you're, you're stupider than me or something. That none of it makes any sense except we all apply these labels. And because we apply them to ourselves, we stick them on other people. When in fact, people are just people. Right. You know, no matter how we want to see them and how we want to characterize them, um, everybody's just trying to do that. I mean, I used to say this a lot. I'll say it again. Everybody's doing the best they can, always. P- human beings are incapable of doing the best they can all the time. It's just that we don't know how to act properly in each situation. For an example, Adolf Hitler was doing exactly what he thought was the right thing to do. And look what he did out of that way, that wrong view. Mm-hmm. So again, just as an example. So the only way we can really liberate ourselves from knowing that I don't have to get involved with another person is to liberate ourselves from that type of thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think that yeah. is what you're referring to. Yeah. yeah. And you've experienced that directly too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The 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 ability to stay disentangled from people um, immediately as it's coming up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's worth the price of admission, isn't it? Right. Yeah. It really is. Meaning, it's right. It's worth all the effort to be able to have that that control over your own mind. So, thank you, Lauren. Tom, do you want to be? You don't have to be on camera here. Nobody. It's nice that everybody can enjoy who's here in the sangha. Let me see if I can. Still a good cameraman. Oh, I don't think. Why does it go? Where am I? I think I'm going. Right. Yeah, it's going the other way. Yeah. There, there we go. go. A little bit more. Somewhere. <laughs> oh. There he is. There he is. There's Tom. Zoom. So, um, <laughs> good to see you again, Tom. It's good to see you. Uh, um, I was saying 
um, this morning that I haven't been in here in about five years. Um, so I'm glad to be back. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. What brought me back was some events that happened with a person in my life. And what I realized, you know, of course, this was a perfect, uh, I guess, class to come to because I realized it was <laughs> the greed and the, the um, clinging and the aversion and the deluded thinking, this sort of thinking that's happened in the previous weeks is what drove me to come back in this class. Mm -hmm. And just that spinning in the mind. And you know, I had a pit in my stomach for the last couple of weeks. And yeah. I sat in the chair and meditated for more than a minute in about five years. And it kind of went away. You know, and everything went to the back of my head, you know, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, and these other like lighter thoughts came into my head as, mm -hmm. I, as I'm sitting there meditating. And, you know, I didn't have the concentration level that I probably once had, but I was able to bring, you know, stop the uh, thought, um, yeah. the, you know, thought, following the thought, you know, at times. And uh, it was just, you know, definitely leaving calmer than I've been, you know, leaving the class calmer than I've been. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, everything's talked about and other people talked about really hit home um certainly the loathing part <laughs> that i've been dealing with most of my life yeah. you know, that self-loathing really most human beings do oh. yeah. yeah drives a lot of the pain and suffering that yeah. most of myself or the experience i would say yeah. um so uh so thank you for that yeah uh, thank you for for joining us again and it, it is just like that you know none of us are unique in self-loathing that is the common human problem you know i mean those are the Two words that I put on, other people call it other things, but uh, it's because of that, because I don't think that I'm good enough for this moment, that I have to fabricate a self in this moment, and that is dukkha. And so you're learning through developing that concentrated mind that you can recognize when you're doing that to yourself, when you're eye making, and simply stop it. And the more you do it, the, the more um, automatic it becomes, the more the Eightfold Path becomes. Um, who and what you are it becomes a framework and guidance for your life but look at you just you, you haven't lost anything in five years you're right back where you were right and you have the you have the practice and you have the, the method down it's just continued practice and the last thing i'll say i haven't said it in this class but i say it in almost every class what is it laura um, be gentle with yourself. Yes, be Always. gentle with yourself. <laughs> Don't judge yourself harshly for anything. Yes. And, and, and in so doing, you'll stop judging other people. So whoever the difficulty is with, they're going through their own stuff and they're acting as, as best as they can in this moment as well. And again, like you are. I'm glad you're here. Uh, David, do you mind being on camera? Don't, John, but that's a good place to end. Thank you. I'm good. You're good? Okay. I'm good. Back to me. Back to the one-eyed stranger. I got that from the red-headed stranger from Willie. I don't know if they'll let me use it, but one-eyed stranger. All right. We're, uh, we'll finish with meta as we always do, and we'll continue this, um, this class. I think we have five more classes wrapping around our retreat, which begins next Friday night. Please attend. We'll finish with meta as we always do. So again, find your relaxed meditative posture and become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the words of the Buddha from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, content and easily satisfied. 
unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.